and we've been watching this for for three years or so move from the kind of bottom of the internet as it were on obscure chans through different levels and layers until it's there in Hansard being used by our politicians. I think that the left and right concept is still relevant. It's definitely relevant on Twitter. Don't forget, you know, you have four platforms that have more than 90% of the internet on them. QAnon is dangerous and it's already done real harm. Memes can be quite concise ways and quite funny ways of really pointing out a very stupid point that maybe like a politician's made or like a pretty stupid policy. To take the red pill, it offers a system, it puts sense on things, it puts order on maybe a lot of things that you've been feeling. So maybe facts don't care about your feelings, but for QAnoners, it's your feelings that send you out looking for facts. Hello and welcome to Reactionary Digital Politics, a podcast series about the relationship of politics and political culture with digital communication and internet culture, and with particular interest in what's happening on the right-wing side of the political spectrum. This is episode eight, How Do We Get Out of Here?, And who are we? I'm Alan Finlayson. I teach and research politics, political theory and rhetoric at the University of East Anglia in Norwich. I'm Rob Topinka. I teach and research media and cultural studies at Birkbeck University of London. I'm Rob Gallagher. I research digital culture at the University of East Anglia. And I'm Sophie Ludkin, a radio producer. So what are we going to be doing this episode? Well, the podcast series is coming to an end. And we've heard how digital platforms have become a vehicle for racists, reactionaries and various self-interested people on the make trying to build support and spread their ideas. We've heard about how digital communication fragments things, encourages hostility, how it spreads conspiracy and misinformation. So for this final episode, we'll ask how can we fix things, how politics could work in digital culture. Towards the end of all our conversations, we asked our interviewees the same question. We know things are bad, but what do we do about it? What do they think of the solutions currently on the table? And what do they think we should take away from the last few years? So this episode collects their thoughts. In a lot of the cases, those thoughts bear on recent conversations about how digital platforms could be better run and better regulated. But as you'll hear, our interviewees also insist on the importance of looking beyond the technological to recognize the underlying conditions that online reactionary movements are capitalizing on. If we fail to do this, then we can't recognize what needs to change. First, though, it's perhaps worth casting our minds back a bit and remembering just how recently digital technologies were being heralded as full of political promise. To use our new knowledge and our new technology as forces for unity, not division, we have to usher in a new age of genuine enlightenment where we are coming together as a people across all the lines that divide us. So you might you might know this event from an animated gif, one of a smug looking Bill Clinton giving a thumbs up to a primitive webcam. It's from a 1999 online town hall event um, and Clinton's speech is a reminder that not so long ago the World Wide Web was imagined as this brilliant new technology that was going to usher in a golden era for democracy. According to the cyber utopians and the tech evangelists, we were all going to be better informed, more connected and more involved in the workings of government. Of course, this rosy picture was always somewhat misleading. And as we've heard, fascists and white supremacists were among the earliest adopters of the internet. 
But the optimism around digital technologies proved surprisingly durable when, in 2011, protesters across the Arab world used smartphones and social media to coordinate opposition to authoritarian regimes. This was received by many as proof that digital technologies were inherently good for democracy. And there are still various initiatives to try and bring about that ideal of digital technologies empowering citizens and making governments more transparent and accountable. The Prime Minister going on Facebook to answer questions, data being made available so people can find out for themselves what's going on in their street and their town. But I think we have to start by thinking about how digital technologies are changing politics for governments, changing how our political institutions see society and see us, the people who live in those societies, changing how they find out what's going on and how they plan to intervene. For Claire Birchall, a reader in contemporary culture at King's College London, open government data illustrates what's at stake here. For her, there's something very telling about how these initiatives position users and how they imagine politics. So these are the data portals that came into existence um, under Obama in the US and under Cameron in the UK. And what they offer is sort of reams and reams of government agency data sets and they're free to look at and they're free for app makers to utilise. So they're offered to us with this sort of promise of democratic you know, goods, in a sense, democratic gains. But what becomes really clear is that they're really there to stimulate economic growth because open data is this big resource in that sense. And obviously that's not maybe so bad. You know, governments do have to stimulate the economy, uh, but it becomes compl- complicated uh, when we start to see what kind of government data gets used by app developers. You know, they only pick up certain kinds of data sets that they think they can make interesting apps out of that people will use. And I think that this really delimits the very relationship between governments and citizens. So they look at things like crime data, house costs, school performance indicators and hospital ratings to generate apps that then help users to make informed choices about where they live, what school to send their kids to or what hospitals to use. So we get configured as consumers that have to make choices within this variated field and we get positioned as playing the system for our own individual benefit rather than like fixing the system collectively. So we're positioned not as a collective of citizens, but as individual consumers presented with information that we can use to further our, our own personal interests, information that's useless to those without the tools or know-how to make use of it. And the rhetoric of, of transparency and trust was further undermined by Edward Snowden's revelations about states using digital platforms to covertly spy on their citizens, as Claire explained to us. You know, on the one hand, you've got open government data portals that position our relationship with the government in certain ways with the state and certain ways but then we also have surveillance which (laughs) delimits us our agency in another kind of you know another way so it's two sides of the same coin for me in some ways and then with conspiracy theories I mean they are connected in a way because I think all this open data does really very little to assuage the hyper vigilant subject that's part of and encouraged by this provision of open government data so for me, I mean, not, not just for conspiracy theorists, but for maybe lots of us, open data is the wrong answer to questions that people have about what their governments are doing in their name, right? So whether you worry about, you know, deep state actors orchestrating global pandemics as a so-called conspiracy theorist might, or whether you worry about, let's say, political manipulation 
of the intelligence upon which acts of war are based, as many on the left did before the Second Gulf War, they both stem from a concern about what is happening beyond view. And, you know, quite frankly, no technological fix can solve that. Only political commitment to certain ethics and principles that are proven over time. So for Claire, it's perhaps worth saying genuinely radical forms of political transparency, backed up by that kind of commitment to ethical principles and facilitated by digital technology, are still possible to imagine. But there are lots of questions here that we won't know the answers to until time has passed on and we've seen what people have created. What would a political party look like that took these kinds of ideas to heart, that made digital platforms central to its strategy and its ways of operating? There have been attempts to do that, but those kinds of parties have been very unstable. They've often been easily manipulable by populist leaders. It's not quite clear how they would actually work. Maybe there are ways of designing platforms that would help people discuss, debate and think through issues in ways that were calmer, that took time and helped people understand what was happening. But the jury's out on what those would look like and how successful they would be. Right now, much of the concern is about this reactionary turn in digital culture. And a lot of the responses have focused on regulating and redesigning the platforms like Facebook, YouTube and Twitter. And also about deplatforming regulation and moderation and proposals to break up monopolies and, and rewrite algorithms. And it's certainly true that these measures can be effective, but there are also reasons to be suspicious of this kind of tech solutionism and to question whether we can trust platform holders to get things right. For Matthew Feldman, the director of the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right, deplatforming raises complex questions about who has the right to impose bans. He argues there is an important difference between airing unsavory ideas and sharing materials like bomb-making manuals. So I think long-term, the question not just of should these people be kicked off, let's say, the main platforms, which don't for, don't forget, you know, you have four platforms that have more than 90% of the internet on them. So these are enormous things. And I do think that there is a question of who watches the watchers, right? So even in the case of somebody as egregious as Donald Trump, whether or not non-elected representatives should be always making those decisions is a live issue. Likewise, there has to be a balance struck between free speech, even saying things that are ugly or noxious and incitement to murder or terrorism. And for me, my own little sort of crusade in that respect has been trying to take down terrorist manuals that are just too easy to get. And I believe very difficult for someone to say, you know, unless it's perhaps a few nerds who are doing this kind of stuff professionally, that these terrorist manuals are do no harm or of, of, of esoteric interest, something like Brevik's. 2083. Hugo Leal, who researches networks and disinformation at the University of Cambridge, feels that antitrust measures and greater regulation have been shifting in the right direction, but that the fundamental problem is still a business model based on trading in our personal data. So we know we know the effects. We kind of know what solutions could be adopted, but I do, I do not think that they will have the courage. And, and by they, I mean us. I mean, the American administration... The EU uh, will have the, the courage to, to outlaw the business model, which would be the, one of the only solutions that I see. Hugo also believes that platforms need to do more to facilitate research. He argues that granting researchers like him access to deleted accounts or enabling a more robust investigation of how recommendation algorithms work might enable academics to better diagnose and to deal with problems like misinformation. You know, I've been trying to, to get served by YouTube for years now, and I've been failing completely. I've been trying to invite the, the legal department to serve me, but I, I cannot. I cannot. They just ignore me. 
They did. They, they did some colleagues in 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 the West, for example. They had there was a big discussion about this. So they were collecting. They got smart and they made a tool that people could install on their machines and through their accounts, and they would see uh, what people see on Facebook. So because one of the problems when even when you collect data and when they give you access to data is that you cannot see what people are seeing. Uh, this is the problem with the with YouTube, for example. I can collect data from YouTube and YouTube's infamous recommendation algorithm, but I would need millions of, lo- of different logins with different histories in order to check and account for YouTube's real uh, effect. And this is impossible to do unless people create these tools, these distributed research uh, tools, people install and then report, and we can really assess the effect of these of these recommendation algorithms. And it's not good. Well, it might be comforting to believe that by just tweaking the code, we can solve the problem. Re-engineering algorithms is not enough on its own. The idea that these are purely technical issues can provide a sense of false reassurance, and it ignores the agency of actual people, right? The people who are creating, circulating, and consuming this right-wing content that we've been talking about. Becca Lewis, who researches these issues at Stanford University, has studied the tactics of right-wing alternative influencers, and she put this point across really powerfully. She gave YouTube as an example, addressing the widely circulated idea that YouTube's algorithm was radicalizing viewers by serving them increasingly extreme content. Based on those widespread criticisms, YouTube has made several changes to its algorithms. Um, The difficulty from the outside is that it's incredibly difficult to judge what those changes precisely are because YouTube keeps um, its algorithm quite under lock and key. It's considered, you know, proprietary. Um, And so researchers from the outside actually have very little to go on when trying to assess actually what uh, the impact has been of these changes. Also, kind of as I argue in my research, that the, the algorithm is really only one small part of what's going on here. And so that doesn't address kind of the broader incentives that are baked in, the kind of demand from audiences that are already radicalized for more far-right content, all of these different factors, the celebrity culture, the social networking. The the one thing additionally that I will say that YouTube has done is they have they have kicked certain creators off of the platform. So some of the most overt white supremacists have been kicked off the platform. Unfortunately, I think some of that is too little too late in terms of harmful effects. So for example, um, the Christchurch shooter, it's now known, was radicalized based on, you know, celebrities on YouTube that since that time have been kicked off, but, uh, you know, clearly were still thriving at the time that he got radicalized. And I think without changes to these incentives, what you have is people um, continuing to fill this vacuum or this space where there's still demand for far-right content, but just getting a little bit more savvy about, you know, what they can and cannot say. So which lines can and cannot be crossed. So if you look at kind of the actual network graph of creators that I mapped in 2018, a lot of them actually have either been kicked off the platform or have just kind of dwindled in influence. But some of them have continued to grow in influence and some new people have taken their place. 
So what you really have is kind of a game of whack-a-mole with YouTube kicking some people off, others springing up, and in some cases, you know, just becoming more and more savvy about how to maintain their presence on the platform. For Bharat Ganesh, who teaches media studies at the University of Groningen, it's important to remember that platform governance also reflects existing prejudices and existing power differentials. These inform things like how platforms draw up guidelines, but also how they apply them, which content gets taken down and so on. You might have very stringent rules, but they're useless if platforms fail to enforce them under pressure from partisan lobbyists. And for him, it's ridiculous to assume that platforms are immune to political pressure, at least when it comes from certain directions. There's, you know, like there's no ISIS leader that's going to pull Mark Zuckerberg into a hearing, right? And accuse him of being biased against ISIS. And, you know, if Mark Zuckerberg is thinking correctly and, you know, he would say, well, yeah, of course I'm biased against ISIS. They're a bunch of terrorists, right? Like that, that it's not a very controversial thing to do, right? But on the other hand, you do have quite literally, right? People like Ted Cruz dragging these people in front of hearings and saying you're biased against uh, conservatives. What are you going to do about this? Right. And instead of making the reasoned argument, well, we have hate speech rules and we have terrorism rules and these were breached by this many people. Right. You have this dancing around from these tech executives trying to say, oh, no, 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 we're not biased against conservatives. Oh, well, you know, we're going to look at our policies and, and blah, blah, blah. Right. But the whole point is that white supremacy is baked into the power structures that the GOP is trying to exploit. Right. And it's doing that effectively and, and putting uh, putting pressure on these platforms in, in doing so. So not only I think you're totally right, like, yeah, white supremacy is baked into, uh, you know, most of the institutions in, in the United States. It's baked into the discourse. Right. It's easy for someone like Tucker Carlson to then go and give it legitimacy. Right. And then there's also the kind of very real element of power that makes it possible for them to, to, to make these claims on platforms, right? And, and encourage platforms to engage in these kinds of risk calculations about what they should do about, you know, far right or white supremacist discourse. I think that's a really important thing for people to think about. It's easy to imagine these are just simple communication platforms that we can or that we ought to be able to use to say whatever we want. But what we found across our research and in the conversations with these podcasts is just how much platforms induce and shape our communicative behaviours and our relationships with each other online. And also how they, the ways they do that can have kind of political and ideological force. Some people complain about liberal bias in what the media report and report on and say. But as Barath shows, the design of platforms can also make, say, racism be a baked-in part of the culture and debate on social media platforms. Winnie Phillips, an assistant professor in communication and rhetoric at Syracuse and the author of numerous books on digital culture, reminds us that the profit motive is also deeply embedded in the design of digital networks, as, as are questionable ideas about whose freedoms take precedence. Part of what we have to fight against is this assumption that our networks have to be this way. Our networks are this way because they were built to be this way, because the people who built them were steeped in particular kinds of ideologies and um, also sort of neoliberal concerns about how to maximize profit, right? That, that we have what we have because they were designed to do those things. And, and what that obscures is that different kinds of networks could have been possible and different kinds of networks still are logically possible. There's a lot of resistance to, to or, or there are lots of challenges to creating different kinds of networks because the networks we have feed so perfectly into and in fact embody 
capitalism. I mean, it's about maximize, it's about making money and making money, maximizing the flow of information doesn't incentivize sort of slower, more thoughtful, less clickbaity kinds of communications. It just doesn't. That doesn't mean that those norms couldn't be shifted. And part of this then, that's why thinking ecologically or, or thinking about sort of broader ideologies is important because right now we've internalized a lot of systems based on, especially in the United States, which then exports these ideals through our technology platforms because our technology platforms are steeped in a lot of sort of U.S. American norms around freedom of speech and the marketplace of ideas and all these sort of liberal assumptions. But right now, the technologies are really steeped in this ideal of negative freedoms, that freedom means being able to say whatever you want at any time and having minimal restriction. And that results in particular kinds of communication practices and challenges around communication. But if we were to shift to a model somehow that privileged and baked into the technological cake, positive freedoms, freedoms for the collective to enjoy equally, those networks would look different. And that, that would encourage different kinds of communication practices because it wouldn't just be about preserving my ability to say whatever I wanted. It would be what would the downstream consequences of something be? How can we maximize freedom for everyone? Which is just not what happens. It's not the mindset on our, our current uh, network. And so if we could find a way to shift that, then there would a space would open up for thinking differently about possibility. Which gets us, I think, to the core of it all. It's about politics. Yeah. In short, the problems run deeper than technology. These platforms don't exist in a vacuum. They're shaped by the values, biases, and assumptions of the people who design them and who use them. So this is why we can't just focus on fixing the technologies we use. We have to address more fundamental problems. In her discussion of the online manosphere, Debbie Ging of Dublin City University told us that there are many factors behind the uptake of aggressive anti-feminist ideologies. Not least among them is the current socioeconomic situation. It, it is very difficult and it's very complex, but I think the answer is also complex. And it, it's it's not any one of these things. I think it's a kind of a perfect storm or, or constellation of all of these things coming together at a particular time. And so you have, number one, really significant shifts in the economy, this transition towards neoliberal capitalism, the erosion of the social safety net, and a lot of young men realizing that they will never have the things that their fathers and grandfathers took for granted. So, and also things that would make them marriageable in a kind of traditional patriarchal society, like owning a house or having a, a career for life. And that kind of stability, that kind of assurance or guarantee is gone for the vast majority um, of, of young men. And so that's a kind of a broader socioeconomic factor, which I think is really significant. I'm not really sure even that, that, that that's necessarily consciously processed. And what goes for the manosphere also goes for those won over by conspiracy theories like QAnon. As we heard in the previous episode, the content of these theories, with their hormone-harvesting cabals of celebrity Satanists, is both so ludicrous and so steeped in racist and anti-Semitic tropes that it's tempting to imagine we can discount them entirely. For our interviewees, however, these theories offer what might be spectacularly wrong answers to what are nevertheless very real and pressing questions. As we explored in our episode on emotions, politics is seldom about whose arguments make logical sense. For that reason, Florian Kramer, a reader in visual culture at the Willem de Kooning Academy in Rotterdam, argues that we can't simply cling to Enlightenment ideals of rationalism and assume that everything will be okay. 
Because I think that the worst thing that you could do is, you know, if you all unite behind a kind of neo-popperianism, yeah, or neo-critical rationality or neo-analytical philosophy, that uh, or yeah, Dawkins would be also really an, an an example of Stephen Pinker. You know, if we all become Stephen Pinker, uh, because uh, there is the irrationality, and so so everyone who has who is uh, trying to prevent the catastrophe is is uniting behind a kind of liberal rationalism. Because I think that yeah, there there is a critique, or there there is a point. There is a discontent, an alienation, but maybe even a critique that needs to be taken seriously and that needs to be fleshed out here. So Florian invokes the philosopher Karl Popper there, who famously attempted to draw a hard and fast line between legitimate critique and conspiracy theories, a term he popularised. But the problem is that that term can sometimes stifle and make it hard for us to see genuine concerns that we need to think about how to address. And Florian's point is echoed by Annie Kelly. As part of her research into QAnon and the anti-vaccine movement, she's attended a number of anti-lockdown protests. So for her, it's crucial to remember that we can reject conspiracy theories without giving the status quo a free pass. Bill Gates doesn't have to be a servant of Satan for us to recognise him as a potentially legitimate target of political criticism. That's a really important like point to bear in mind. And I think it also kind of connects to the cultural sort of point, which is like, don't feel like just because you oppose these people that you have to oppose every single thing they say. Do you know? So I was kind of thinking this during the kind of anti-lockdown march where I was like, I'd really like resent being made to be a pro-lockdown person. Do you know? just purely by virtue of the fact that I don't think these people are right, that the pandemic is fake and Bill Gates is kind of implanting microchips in the vaccine and stuff like that. I still think, you know, sometimes they were kind of saying stuff where they were just like, you know, the Vox, you know, the lockdown's been implemented terribly. Loads of, you know, people who were already rich have been made rich off it. And I was like, that's true. That's correct. Do you know? But it's almost as if once something has kind of become tribalized and if you kind of even agree with half of it you are now kind of in the same in the same camp as them so you have to kind of do this instead sort of thing of like no lockdowns are great and they've been implemented perfectly do you know and i guess yeah it's sort of a real shame i think that the lines have seemed to have been drawn this way as we talked about in our previous episode the writer artist and theorist wu ming one also fears that attempts to debunk conspiracy theories or as he prefers to call them conspiracy fantasies ends up propping up the current order and entrenching divides in his book, he argues that no one is immune to the allure of conspiracy fantasies, and that instead of trying to disprove them, we need to engage creatively with the genuine fears and concerns that lie behind them and motivate them. So I try to go beyond debunking. There's a chapter, a long chapter called Beyond Debunking, where I try to draw examples, to provide examples from magic, uh, from uh, you know illusionism, from magic, from uh, art, from culture, of ways of dealing creatively with the kernels of truth that are hidden in any conspiracy fantasies. But in order to do that, you don't have to dismiss people who believe conspiracy fantasies simply as ignorant people, you know, dumb people or stuff like that. It's, um, it's not effective. It's not even fair because no one can cast the first stone. When it comes to conspiracy fantasies, everyone each one of us believed at least one conspiracy fantasy in their life. So after all this, do we have any conclusions? We have some, perhaps partial conclusions. One, for example, would be that we have to think about the ways in which technology doesn't determine the forms politics takes, 
but at the same time, not underestimate how much of an effect it has. We've been talking about a communications technology, and communication is not an incidental or minor part of politics. Forming ideas, spreading them, communicating them persuasively is part of the essence of politics. And new technologies for that always change politics profoundly, whether it's the invention of mass printing in 17th century Europe, the building of parliamentary debating chambers to host political arguments, daily newspapers, rostrums and loud hailers, TV and film, or opinion polling and market testing. These deeply affect how politics is done, who does it, and to whom they do it. And each of these new technologies has disrupted and confused the old way of doing things. I think that's what's happening now. The way we use the internet, how we immerse ourselves individually within it, within a world of connections which seem meaningful, and the way that's been exploited by people who want to make money or become famous or push a politics, has made our politics one of cults and conspiracies. We get attached to charismatic performers who seem to be able to explain the world, who offer us some ways of acting within it, but really we're giving up the hard, boring work of routine politics for the excitement of the battle. So yes, digital platforms could be doing more to enforce and strengthen guidelines about content, they could be removing dangerous material, they could be supporting more research on misinformation and disinformation. But while it's appealing to think that technical fixes can improve things, the problems go much deeper than that. Yeah, I mean, the way we design and deploy technologies reflects our values, our priorities and our prejudices. So trying to return to the way things were or to shut down or stymie online expression seems misguided and inadequate. And by dismissing irrational responses to real problems out of hand, we can end up defending a status quo that does deserve critique. So platforms have fostered new forms, new genres, new communities, new ways of talking about understanding and doing politics. So we focused here on how the right has shifted the political goalposts. But there are reasons to be optimistic, and we need to look forward. Whether we like it or not, the old way of doing things are not coming back. The question has to be, where do we go next? Which is to say that a lot depends on how we, all of us, use digital technologies. The decisions we make to post or not to post, to click or not to click. It's a question of ethics, how we conduct ourselves. And part of that involves being aware of the things that are pushing and pulling us and affecting our behaviour. People sometimes, even still, behave as if online is some kind of magical space where your actions don't really have any consequences, where you can say and do anything and it doesn't really matter. But it does matter. It does have effects for which people need to take responsibility. You know, one of the things that online does, I think, is make us see people as not really real, as not really there. But they are real people. And the way we behave towards them online is the way we're behaving towards them in real life. Often we turn them into just objects, things we can manipulate and move around on our screens, things that exist just for us to be entertained. Politics, ideology, society, culture, all of it goes wrong when we see each other just as objects. We need to make sure that the technology doesn't stop us from seeing that we are all human beings who could do with being a little bit more human towards each other. On this episode of Reactionary Digital Politics, you have been listening to... My name is Claire Birchall. My name is Florian Carlo. Matthew Feldman. My name is Bharat Ganesh. I'm Debbie Ging. My name is Annie Kelly. My name is Uglial. My name is Becca Lewis. I'm Wumi Wan. I am Whitney Phillips. You also heard from... Me, Rob Gallagher. Me, Rob Topinka. And me, Alan Finlayson. 
And me, Sophie Ludkin. The music was composed by Harriet Riley and produced by Tom Jacob. Production was supported by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, the University of East Anglia and Birkbeck University London. Please like, subscribe, share, retweet, tell your friends. And be nice to each other on the internet. Please do.